We are going to continue our uh, study of the book of First Peter today. Uh, and if you have a Bible, we're in First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. And you can also find that text printed for you in your bulletin. First Peter 3, verse 1. This is God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a, uh, this is a difficult text, and uh, this can be a touchy text text. So I pray for uh, grace this morning, simply to communicate the, the truth of your word and, and not to add anything to it. Uh, and I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear and that we would indeed be those who are uh, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by giving heed uh, to the teaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this should be fun. Um, I, I'm gathering from this text that my job this morning is to tell women how to dress and to submit to their husbands. Uh, so if any of you guys want to change places with me right now, George, you want to, no, I'm good. You're going to let me go with this. Um, seriously, the, the, the issues that we're going to address this morning can be a bit delicate. So I, I appreciate if you, if you bear with me. Uh, it's said that love covers a multitude of sins, so I um, hope you extend grace my direction this morning. Uh, I, did send a, I did send an email out to the ladies of grace who are on our church email list earlier in the week uh, just to get their feelings on, on these issues and what they've heard taught on them uh, in the past. So uh, hopefully they've steered me in the, in the right direction. Uh, but, but thanks to those of you who replied, it was, it was helpful and encouraging to read what you had to say. Uh, here's what I think, just to kind of set this all up, here's what I think the key statement in this whole section is, is verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Um, if, ladies, and this sermon, everybody's primarily going to be directed toward the ladies here next week, it's going to be primarily directed toward the men, um, but ladies, as you're hearing this, if, if you're struggling with uh, either the issue of submission to your husbands or with something that we say about clothing and dress and modesty, then I hope you, what you get out of this is not rules, but what I hope you wrestle with is what these issues say about where your hope is. Because I think that's kind of the key heart issue. He says, as the holy women in the past who hoped in God. And so the real issue is going to be what does, uh, what does the way you think about these issues say about where you put your hope? Are you really hoping 
in God. Um, so that's where we're going, kind of underlying this whole discussion. And what I want, the question I want to ask this morning basically is what makes a woman beautiful? Uh, what makes a woman beautiful? And there's three things I think we see from this text that make uh, a beautiful woman. Uh, number one, a beautiful woman is one who submits to her husband's leadership. A beautiful woman is one whose real beauty is her character. And a beautiful woman loves Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible, it's not that the Bible doesn't say anything about physical beauty or attractiveness. It's just not the emphasis, and it's not the emphasis of this text. So these, these are what we're going to look at. Uh, a beautiful woman, first of all, is one who submits to her husband's leadership. Now, that's, I think it's pretty plain from the text. Look in verse one, uh, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And then jump down to verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, um, even with a qualification that the obedience that Sarah offered to her husband Abraham was not like the obedience of the child, like that a child offers to a parent. That's not what the text is getting at there. But the general principle is still pretty clear that Peter expected believing wives to submit to the leadership of their husband. Now, this is a loaded subject to talk about, and I'm, I'm well aware of this, uh, because our culture at large tends to hold, uh, tends to think that anyone who holds this view is paternalistic. Uh, misogynistic, just, just hates women in general if this is the way you think about this subject. We also have to deal with the fact, as we're talking about this, that the church at large has at times just gone along with the culture on this issue. And so you hear churches at times trying to explain why the Bible doesn't really mean what it says and trying to explain away texts like this, almost as if we're embarrassed of the Bible. Uh, let me say that this is not something, this, this is not like an isolated verse. Uh, this is a continuing theme in Scripture. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22-24, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so, all, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the issue is not that this is not clear in the Bible. Uh, it, it's, it's very plain and straightforward in the Bible. And the church has a problem on one hand if, they, if the church tries to ignore or change what the Bible actually teaches or to explain it away. But the church also has a problem when it allows this teaching to be abused or teaches this in such a way that it belittles women's competencies uh, our gifts our, our, our leadership ability or those sorts of things when women's opinions aren't taken seriously i think the church is, is guilty of, of misusing this teaching so we have to be careful about how we talk about it on the one hand but we can't just ignore what the Bible says because culturally we might be a little bit uncomfortable with what it says. Uh, one of the things we talk about in our inquirers class is that Grace Presbyterian Church, the, the scriptures are our authority. And so they're, 
our authority on this issue as well. So, what does it mean then for a wife to submit to her husband? What does that, what does that look like? I want to start out by talking about what it doesn't mean. Uh, because I think this needs a lot of qualification. The problem with making a lot of qualification is you can be, you run the risk of not saying anything at all about the subject. Like, you know, you, you can die the death of a thousand qualifications. But I think it's needed. So we're going to talk about what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean. Uh, first of all, what, what it doesn't mean. Number one, this is a call for one woman to submit to one man her husband. It's not a call for all women to submit to all men. Uh, the biblical teaching, as we're going to see, relates to a woman's role in marriage and not to her giftedness or to her competency or her intelligence or anything like this. Uh, it doesn't say anything about her place in the workplace. It doesn't say that men should always be in charge you know, out, uh, every, everywhere. Uh, it relates to wives submitting simply to their husbands and not to other men. So that's the first thing. Secondly, saying that a wife should submit to her husband doesn't say anything about her value as a person. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, you may feel like, well, yeah, it does. Um, but, but, but scripturally, actually, it doesn't. Uh, submission does not imply that women are inferior because think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, submitted himself to the will of his father. First uh, Corinthians 11 tells us that the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God the father. Jesus was not less powerful than his father. Jesus wasn't a, a junior member of the Trinity. Okay. It's like, ah, oh, here's God and Jesus is down. He's not that good. So, no, they're equal in power and glory. His submission was not a sign of weakness on his part. His submission was not a sign of weakness. He was all-powerful, but he voluntarily submitted himself to the will of his father. Uh, Kathy Keller, who along with Tim Keller wrote a book, co-wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, is talking about this issue, and she writes... I discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced from me. I discovered that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced from me. So submission says nothing about a wife's value as a person, a woman's value as a person. Thirdly, uh, submission doesn't mean that a wife is supposed to suppress all her creative energy or that she never does anything without the permission of her husband. Um, look at the Proverbs 31 woman. Are you familiar with, with this scripture? She, she considers a field and, and buys it. Now, ladies, I don't know that I would encourage you to go, you know, buy 40 acres without talking to your husband about it. Um, I mean, unless you just got that kind of money. But, um, Certainly, the Proverbs 31 woman wasn't just sitting over in the corner waiting for her husband to, to tell her to go do something, okay? So, so that's not what this means. Fourthly, submission doesn't mean that a wife is to offer her husband unconditional obedience or submission. Uh, if, a wife, if a husband tells a wife to do something that involves disobeying God, then you're going to disobey your husband. Say, so you're crazy. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, fifthly, 
Submission, and I, and I think this text can be twisted in this way at some time. Submission doesn't mean that a woman has to sit and take verbal or physical abuse from a husband uh, who abuses the intent of this text. It may mean that you have to, to bend over backwards to, to put up with a very difficult situation to respect and submit to a husband who's hard to respect and submit to. But it's not a call just to sit around in, in an unsafe place uh, and to submit to, to verbal or, or physical abuse without trying to do anything about it. In fact, if you're in that situation, uh, call me and, and we'll do something about it. Call the police, we'll do something about it. That's not what this text is saying. And then finally, and I know I'm, I'm probably in some of these, I'm dealing with stereotypes, but they actually do exist among some men. Submission doesn't mean that the wife is just kind of sitting quietly waiting for the husband to say, bring me my beer in their mood, okay? Um, that's not what submission looks like. Um, and wives, some of you don't, you're not going to need this encouragement, and husbands are going to get mad at me for saying this. But, but sometimes you need to argue with your husbands, okay? This doesn't mean that you can't argue with your husbands and have robust discussions with him because sometimes, perhaps very often, he's wrong. Uh, I know I'm wrong very often, or so I'm told. Um, and, and husbands, you actually need to, to learn to listen to your wife. So, all right, there's all my qualifications. That's what submission doesn't mean. What does it mean? I think in order to think about this properly, you have to think of men's and women's roles within the context of marriage and how we're created. You actually have to go back to the early chapters of Genesis. If you go to Genesis, God creates Adam, and he says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, this is the first time in the whole creation account that God makes anything and says it wasn't good. But he makes Adam, and he says it wasn't good that he should be alone. And so he creates Eve from Adam the text tells us to be Adam's helper. Now, uh, what this means, ladies, when you're marrying somebody, you're committing to joining together with someone for the common task of glorifying God uh, in your family, in your household, in the world at large. And so you can't be at, at cross purposes with your husband. You're meant to help him. That doesn't mean, we get hung up on the word helper in English, that doesn't mean like daddy's little helper or something. The, the word helper there in the Genesis text is actually the same word that's used of God many times. That God is a helper to his people. And so the idea there in the text is that the husband actually needs the help. The husband needs the help. They're lacking without the help of their wives. Um, one person put it this way. They said husbands and wives are like different puzzle pieces. They're shaped differently, but they fit together to form one piece, one coherent picture to make something that's complete. And so the wife brings things to the marriage that the husband is lacking. The husband brings things to the marriage that the wife is lacking. And it's within that context that the husband's called to be the leader, uh, a, a servant leader, but the leader in the in the family now men let me say a couple things to men here guys that means you're responsible to lead your family and one of the ways that shows up is that you're responsible for leading your family spiritually 
Um, you, your wife shouldn't have to drag you away from Sports Center in order to read the Bible to your kids or, or, or to pray with and for your kids. You're responsible for the spiritual condition of your household, for leading and shepherding your family. Uh, another thing this means, men, is that sometimes you have to break the tie. All right, when, when husbands and wives are um, discussing, planning, arguing, uh, you're going to come to situations, or at least we have, as nobody else had this, uh, where, where you, you just can't agree, right? And you talk about it, and you talk about it, you pray about it, pray about it, and, and you still can't agree on what to do. And in this situation, the husband has to be a leader and break that tie. Um, I want you to listen. This is a little bit long, but I want you to listen to what Kathy Keller said about this. And I think it's, I think it's actually going to give you a helpful picture of what this looks like. Um, she writes, this should be the place where the one the Bible calls head takes accountability. When it happens, both people submit to their role. Often an intelligent husband don't, doesn't want this role, and an intelligent wife does. The situation could be chaotic, but here we are called out to act out the drama of redemption, where the son voluntarily gives the headship to the father, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. And then she goes on to illustrate this, and I think this might be really helpful to you about what this actually looks like in practice. She writes, in the late 1980s, our family was very comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited about the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right choice to do, then exercise leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, my sons included, consider it one of the most truly manly things he ever did because he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. So just kind of a a practical way that, that this teaching gets worked out. And that's, again, that's in a book called The Meaning of Marriage. If you want to check that out, it's a good book on marriage. A, a, a beautiful woman is one who submits to the leadership of her husband. Now, I need to say, uh, husbands, again, you make it much easier for your wife to follow your leadership if you're doing what God calls you to do. And what God calls you to do is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. 
and how did Christ love the church? He loved the church by dying for the church. He didn't hold on to his position, but he came. He, he gave up his life. He came to serve his bride, the church. That's what he was devoted to doing. Uh, husbands, the, the leadership you're called to is a sacrificial servant leadership that puts the needs of your wife before your own needs. And if, guys, if we're actually doing that and filling our role, then our wife's role becomes much easier to carry out. Uh, a beautiful woman submits to the leadership of her husband. Now, that was the easy part of this discussion, all right? Because now we're going to talk about clothes. Uh, a, a beautiful woman submits the leadership of her husband. A beautiful woman's real character is, is her beauty. Her real beauty is her character. Sorry, I got that backwards. Her real beauty is her character. Now, look at, look at verse 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, uh, ladies, these passages are not telling you that you need to try to look like a man uh, or, or that you shouldn't try to be attractive or that you can't wear makeup. Uh, the Bible doesn't say, women, you need to try real hard to be ugly, okay? That's... All right, that's, 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 your calling is to try to be ugly. That's, that's not what this is saying. If, if you read this literally in the Greek, what it says is that your adornment shouldn't come from the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Now, now, now think about that for a minute. Literally what that says is you can't braid your hair or wear gold or put on clothes. And I don't think he's like saying we all need to go to a nudist colony or, or, or something like that. What, what is happening here is that these guys are reacting against, uh, teaching against those who have gone to excessiveness in these particular areas of their appearance. In other words, don't focus on making a, a display of yourself for, for everyone around you to notice. Now, I am not an expert on women's clothing. And you should be thankful for that. Uh, it would be very awkward if, if I was. My grandmother worked for, for Sears Roebuck for, for several years in their Montgomery, Alabama store. And she was the head of the women's department. And, and I think I got this right. Um, part of her job description was to go to clothing shows in Atlanta and pick out the clothes that would be in the store in Montgomery. And I think this was like in the, in the 60s and 70s. So I'm sure she had some fun clothes. I didn't get any of those jeans, okay? I didn't get any of those clothing jeans. And, and, and even if I was an expert, this is a really difficult subject to, to wade into. I want you to listen to what Jen Hatmaker said. She's a, a Christian author uh, and speaker about this subject. And this is actually from, from one of her Facebook posts, but it's a, it's a public post. I am finding most Christian writing and thinking on the subject of clothes to be frustrating irritating, isolating, 
contextually irrelevant and superficial. She goes on to write, I find most leaders only want to talk about modesty, are dressing up for church versus, dressing, versus not dressing up for church, are women having long hair, are miniskirts. Precious little is said about men, mind you. I find virtually no one who wants to address how much money we spend on clothes, or how we are in bondage to public opinion and appearances, or how fashion is a very stupid topic globally, or what Jesus said about clothing the naked. So, um, with, with that kind of in mind, and acknowledging this is a, this is a difficult such, uh, subject, I want to maybe start the conversation at least uh, on this, and y'all got, you'll have plenty to talk about over lunch. Uh, number one, I, I do think that part of this subject and part of what modesty involves is not dressing suggestively. Now, there is a little bit of a backlash, even in Christian circles, uh, against this right now because, number one, it is true, men usually aren't encouraged to dress modestly. Uh, and number two, women are often made to feel that they're responsible and it's their fault if men are struggling with lust. And so it feels like all the responsibility falls on the women. Uh, there's a really funny article. One of you sent me this, and I'd seen it and forgotten about it. Uh, and it's written by a young lady, and I want you to listen to this. I think you'll kind of get it. There has been a lot of talking, debating, and hand-wringing among Christian bloggers lately about modesty, particularly yoga pants, making men uncomfortable by being attractive, and in general, ways in which to combat everyone's favorite evil, lust. Well, I'd like to hop on the modesty bandwagon and discuss something that I have personally struggled with for many, many years. Deep breath. Suits. Specifically, men in suits. Yes, folks, I struggle with lusting after men in suits. I want to be brutally... Y'all can laugh at this. I want to be... <laughs> this is not me. This is a lady writing this. I'll make that very clear. Um... I want to be brutally honest about this struggle. As youngish heterosexual woman, who, as a youngish heterosexual woman who is trying to keep her thoughts pure and her eyes on Jesus, I have to say every day, every day is a battle. Now, all right, point point well made. Women do struggle with with lust. You can you can lust after someone who is who is fully clothed. And I think the larger point. She's kind of telling men to, to get a grip and quit blaming women for your struggles and obsessing about what they wear and, and making it all their fault. Uh, and, and there's truth to that, right? Uh, men are responsible to control their thoughts, uh, and, and that's a sanctification issue for men. But uh, it is also true that men are wired to respond visually in ways that women aren't. Uh, are much more so than women are. Maybe I should put it that way. And because of this, while women, you may be free to wear something, uh, sometimes it would be lovingly helpful to your brothers in Christ if you wore something else, put it like that, something more modest. Uh, additionally, ladies, um, when you dress and when your daughters dress, and this is an important topic for mothers and daughters to talk about, when you and your daughters dress in a certain way, you are going to attract a certain type of man. But there's just, there's no getting around that. Uh, Jenny McCarthy, and I can't actually read her quote because um, I would get in trouble for that, but, but she, was, 
she was essentially dared by one of her friends to go out in New York City rather scantily clad, or, or more scantily clad than usual. And she said that at first she felt, she felt um, very liberated. But then as the day went on, and, and I can't read all the comments she, she dealt with, she just dealt with these lewd and obscene comments all day. One guy even went, fell off of a bar stool trying to, to look up her skirt, all right, and, and sit in a bar, okay? And so this is what she, what she dealt with all day. And she said she kind of went back and forth between feeling sorry for these guys and wanting to slug them in the face. Uh, and she writes, yes, it's a free country. Yes, I should be able to dress as I please, but I practically have sure thing tattooed on my forehead. How's he supposed to know the difference? All right, so it, it, it does have an effect. And, and another writer, and I can't remember her name, it's in a book called Eve's Revenge, writes, lovers are now desired not necessarily to give one's life meaning, but rather in the way you might desire a zookeeper. You don't have to love me. Please just keep the other animals off of me. And so we, we as a culture have thrown off restraints. We've thrown off modesty. But are we really more free? Are women really more safe at the end of the day? So three benefits real quickly of dressing modestly. It will protect you from a, attracting the wrong type of man. It does help your brothers in Christ. And then thirdly, um, dressing modestly, pursuing modesty, preserves the mystery and beauty of sex and marriage. And I don't have time to get into that one. Uh, there's a great quote by Naomi Wolf, if you want to read it about this, that, that's pretty fascinating. Um, one of you ladies sent me a, a, something about this, and I'm going to read this. I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, I'm not going to like call you out or anything. Uh, but I actually think it's really good, and I want to read it, talking about this issue of modesty. I like the idea of integrity, being the same inside and out. When I dress slovenly, it may suggest I don't care. When I obviously spend too much on apparel, it indicates my values and priorities. When I wear something suggestive in public, it may indicate some desire for attention or may misrepresent my ideals. So as you can see from that, I think that's a good way to put it. This isn't just about uh, not dressing suggestively. You also have to ask yourself the question, why do I spend as much money as I do on clothes? Or, or why do I need this many pair of shoes? Now I'm not saying if you spend more than whatever, dollar amount on clothes or dollar amount or have X number of shoes that Jesus is mad at you. Um, like there's kind of this limit in heaven. Oh, you're over that. Uh, but I am asking you to think about what's driving your concern for your appearance. I am asking you to ask yourself, how much relative to my tithe do I spend on clothes? Uh, how much relative do, to, to what I give to the poor do I spend on clothing? And look, let's be honest here. This is addressed to women, but this can be a men issue too. Uh, when we lived in Boone, Susan will be quick to tell you, I had like a jacket for every five degree variation in the temperature. You know, it's 45 and it's raining, I got that jacket. It's 50 and it's sunny, I got that jacket. So, so guys, we can, we, can, we can do this as well. Uh, Peter's just simply addressing women in this text. Uh, Jen, Jen Hatmaker, who I, I mentioned earlier, Susan's been reading this book, 
that I got to try to help prepare for this sermon, but which she stole from me and has, has really liked. Uh, but, but one of the things she does, it's called an experimental mutiny against excess. And one of the things she does is she does this experiment where she tries to get through a month with as few outfits as possible. And I can't remember how many she limits herself to, but it's seven, because that's the name of the book, right? Seven. All right. So seven outfits for the month. And, and oh, seven pieces. That's even better. Seven pieces of clothing for the month. Okay. So that's her limit. And she just kind of wants to see what, what, that would, what that would be like. And she had to speak at a conference during this time. And she came out after the first night. She came out and went to breakfast the next morning in her blue jeans and, and T-shirt. And, and this is what she wrote. We were a crowd of women in ponytails and old jeans. Because everybody had put on their jeans and had the conference T-shirt that they had given away. So everybody's basically wearing the same thing that morning. We were a crowd of women in ponytails and old jeans, not trying to impress one another or paste on a Christian face. It was the feminine group dynamic at its simplest, and it appealed to the truest part of me that loves authentic authenticity. I wish women could regularly enjoy this freedom together, liberated from competition and comparison. There is something so marvelous about women comfortable in their own skin. And so I think kind of what this question comes down to to get at your heart and not at a list of rules is, are you trying to find your identity and your value and your appearance? Are you constantly depressed because you feel like you don't measure up to the appearance of women around you? Peter is, is, is turning you away, ladies, from obsessing over the external and pointing you to the internal and where true beauty lies. He points us here to the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet or a peaceable spirit. Um, gentle, one God defined as an amiable friendliness that contrasted with roughness, bad temper, or brusqueness. Quiet or peaceable, the sense of being calm, peaceful, and tranquil as opposed to restless, rebellious, and disturbed. The Bible says that true feminine beauty is about a gentle and quiet heart. Now, and I'm going to wrap up here, but where do you get that? All right, where do you find a gentle and a quiet heart? Go back to the verse we talked about at the very beginning. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves. See, the, the only way you can submit to your husband's leadership is if you realize that God has put him in that position. And you give up trying to control your life and your family by trying to control your husband. And instead of putting your hope in your ability to control the situation, you put your hope in God. You put your hope in the fact that God is in control. Even when your husband has made a decision that you know is a bad decision. The only way you can become a woman who focuses on the internal instead of on the external is that it is if your hope is in the Lord and not in what you think about yourself or your appearance. If your hope is in the Lord and not what other people think about you. If your hope is in the Lord and not your ability to find your value and how you look. Which means, all right, so think about all that. Which means 
that a truly beautiful woman has to be someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is assumed, right? Because what does Peter say in the very first verse? He assumes that women will want to win their unbelieving husbands to Christ. Because they love Jesus. They want their unbelieving husbands to know Jesus Christ as well. They want their husbands to know the Savior that they've come to know. And at the end of the day, ladies, the only one who really has the power to make you truly beautiful in this biblical sense is Jesus. Uh, the scripture tells us that all of us one day will see him, will be like him because we will see him as he is. And ladies and men, really, uh, the more time you spend staring at Jesus and the less time you spend staring in the mirror, the more time you spend contemplating who Christ is and what he has done for you, and the less time you spend contemplating yourself and your faults and who you need to be and who you should be, the more time you spend looking at Jesus Christ, the more beautiful you'll become. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that... Um, Anything that I've said that is not right or not helpful, that you'll just sweep that away and help us to forget about it. Uh, but anything that I have said that is, that is faithful to your word, that you really would impress that upon our hearts, uh, that you would help us to change where we need to change. Uh, and even more than that, that you would help us to trust you where we need to trust you. Uh, Jesus, you're our Savior. Help us to live like that. Help us truly to give every day, placing our hope in you. We ask in your name. Amen.